don't we all need to laugh a little given the dire state of the world? All the more reason to welcome Samantha Irby, author of Wow, No Thank You, to the podcast this week. What can we expect from our leaders during periods of crisis? John Meacham will be here to talk about what leadership looks like through the lens of books about earlier crises. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the publishing world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. It's April 17th. I'm Pamela Paul. Joining us now from Kalamazoo, Michigan, Samantha Irby. Her new collection is called Wow, No Thank You. Samantha, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the obvious question, which I feel like is at the beginning and end of every single email and text right now. How are you doing? I am actually doing okay, which feels like weird to say considering what's going on. But I am an inside person, so I don't mind not getting fresh air and not saying hello to people. It is just sort of terrifying existing in the world. Like I'm also not watching a lot of news, but as for adjusting to being inside all the time, it wasn't really an adjustment for me. I was like, like, oh, I don't really uh, go outside anyway. So this is perfect. Yeah, your first essay in the collection, Into the Gross, is kind of about your daily routine. And I was trying to figure out, well, how would that have changed during quarantine and it like it probably wouldn't have changed maybe until the end of the day where your wife comes home from work but I'm assuming she's not or is she going out to work every day she is not working she is a social worker in the public schools and they very quickly in Michigan were like um y'all stay home so she has been here all day and we're so we're figuring out like how to do that like how to be in the house together all the time it's harder for her because she is the person who's like hey I'm gonna be in the garden hey I'm gonna go for a walk hey I'm gonna also go for a run in the (laughs) same day which I do not every time she's like I'm going for a walk I'm like but you just ran where are you gonna walk to so my day hasn't changed at all except because she's here I feel like I need to look more productive than I usually am. I've had to be like, uh, I watch a little bit more TV than you think I watch. (laughs) (laughs) I know everyone is getting a very good idea of what their partner does in this moment that they they never knew before. I haven't asked anyone, how are you doing? No one is saying, great. Like no one, you know, that that super peppy response is just not happening. How are things in Kalamazoo? Is it total lockdown there? Michigan is completely locked down. So Kalamazoo is like kind of equidistant between Detroit and Chicago on 94. And so Detroit's like a couple hours east of us. And Detroit's been pretty ravaged. I think last we heard last week, there were fewer than 100 cases here. Although part of the not being okay of it all is no one knows where it is or who has it or how many people have it. We're pretty sure our neighbor had it and she went to the ER and they couldn't test her. So that's one of those things where it's like, everybody seems like they're kind of okay, but we don't actually know because no one really knows. So 
it seems like everybody's fine, but also how can you know? I was on a Zoom with my book club last night, and one of the members had been living in Paris and came back and had to do the 14-day quarantine. And I think on day 14, you know, he finally emerged from his apartment, and there was some kind of message from, I don't know if it was a doorman or next door or something, being like, what are you doing out? You're supposed to be on quarantine. So it's this weird thing of like, I don't know if it was a camera that caught him or someone, you know, spying in the hallway, but it's like you either know too much or you don't know at all. Oh, God, that would really freak me out because just the idea that anyone is paying attention to anything I do is very distressing to me, but <laughs> that they would watch me and then send me a note. I would have an anxiety spiral for sure. But in your writing, you are so open. Like, I feel like we all know what you do. <laughs> Everyone knows what I tell you that I do, but it's different if someone is watching you do it. You know, like when it doesn't feel like a choice to share, I slip around the house and carry my belongings from room to room. But if you said you saw me doing that, I'd be like, oh, no, <laughs> did I at least look interesting? Were my clothes <laughs> clean? <laughs> Was my shirt tucked in? Your book basically came out right in the thick of this. I think you're probably luckier than some in that this is your third book of essays, your fourth book, right? Third book of essays. And then I have like an e-book that doesn't really count. Well, <laughs> I'm sure counts. my publisher is like, it counts. It counts. It counts. <laughs> right now, ebooks is a lot of what people are reading because they are, they can't have access to bookstores or to libraries in many cases. But also, authors like you can't go on book tour. Are you doing a virtual book tour? Like, what were you supposed to be doing? And what are you doing instead in terms of promoting the book? I was supposed to go across the country. I was going to start at this festival in Iowa, and then go to Seattle and down the West Coast and then do the Midwest and then start in New York and go down the East Coast. I don't think anyone has figured out the perfect virtual tour. So I've done a few things. I've done some Skype podcasts. I'm going to do some Instagram live kind of conversations. And then I did one Zoom panel, which was, I thought it was, it like felt really weird. Uh, <laughs> but I don't think we figured out exactly like the best way. Like everyone's kind of learning or figuring it out as they go. So I don't have an official virtual tour. I'm going to do a virtual event with my bookstore in Chicago. But as for like the rest, of the country. I don't know what we're going to do. It's also, I mean, it's a hard thing because it's also, it feels like a little gross to be selling a book right now. Like, it, you know, we're like sort of towing the line between rescheduling things, but also understanding that like people are sick and maybe it's not, it's not as important to figure out how to broadcast me out into the world. It really is like a day by day, oh, hey, this person figured out how you could do this in Philly. Let's do that. We have no set plan. We're just kind of playing it by ear and, and doing what we can. All right. Well, here's my framework for that. I think of it not as selling a book, 
but as supporting booksellers and publishers and other authors who are out there and also helping readers because readers are are desperate right now. I want to read actually something that Carl Sagal, our critic, wrote in her review of your book. I hope you're not one of those people that avoids reading reviews of your own book. <laughs> I am, but I know that this is, was positive because everyone told me it was positive. So I'm braced for it. And it's cool. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Ready. She wrote, Instead of a rule, then, a recommendation for this moment, if in the grips of the pandemic, your ability to interpret an exponential graph has increased, well, exponentially, while your patience for narrative has plummeted, try Samantha Irby. <laughs> so she is heartily recommending you <laughs> as something to read right now. In order to give listeners a taste of why that is, would you read a little bit from your new collection, Wow No Thank You? Yes. So this is from a piece called Hung Up, and it is about my love of cellular phones. I was late to the technology game. I'm staring down the barrel of my 40th year, and I bought my computer six or seven years ago. I didn't get my first iPhone until they'd been around for years, partially because I thought, who needs that? I prefer to live in the real world. Mostly, I was skeptical because the idea of walking around with a $500 computer in my pocket seemed ridiculous and dangerous to me. And the idea that I could somehow scrape together the money to purchase said pocket computer while also maintaining a roof over my head, i.e. partying all the time and paying for basic cable, was hilarious and unrealistic. I was the last dinosaur at the club sending multi-tap texts on an analog Nokia E51 with no camera. When I finally upgraded to a smartphone several years after unsolicited selfies had taken hold of the nation, my exhausted thumbs cracked and bleeding from a decade of repeatedly jamming down the two key to make a letter C, I didn't get what all the fuss was about. Okay, sure. This glowing rectangle in my bag can tell me the weather anywhere in the world at this exact moment, but who cares? But wait, it could also figure out precisely what wrong street I'm turning down and steer me back in the right direction. And it can count how many steps I took today while saving for me all the passwords I can never remember. Please excuse me while I build a shrine to the new most important thing in my life. I've read on my phone that we as a nation, as a species, have a problem with cell phones. Insert facts about the harms of cell phone usage that I'm never going to research because I do not enjoy feeling like an underachiever. But do we really? Is there actually a problem with rescuing our brains from the doldrums of sitting at a red light or from the malaise caused by having even a single second to sit alone with one's terrible thoughts? I don't have children, therefore I don't have any opinions on whether electronic devices are a bad influence on the mental growth and development of a child. If you tell me they are, then I believe you. I'm sure there's scientific evidence to prove it. And I'm positive there are doctors and licensed professionals who would attest to the deleterious effect modern technology has on the brains and interpersonal skills of adults, but hear me out. Maybe it's worth it. 
That was great. What about you, Samantha? Have you been able to read for fun during this time? I'm not ever so distracted that I can't pick up a book, which I feel is good. So I have been reading a lot of fiction and like nothing about disease or being locked in a room. (laughs) But you're a huge thriller fan, right? Is there? Yes. Any recommendations like good escape reading, either thrillers or YA, which I know you also love? Yes. So I am like pretty obsessed with this writer, Louisa Luna. There are two books in this series so far. I don't think the series has a name. It's like an Alice Vega novel, I think is maybe like the subtitle. But the first one is called Two Girls Down. And her second book in the series is called The Janes. And I just reread both of those and they are so good. She is so good. Thrillers are my thing and she is a master. And I just reread Mary H.K. Choi's books, Emergency Contact and Permanent Record. And they're both YA. They make me feel totally uncool. Because she has like mastered the way young people talk. And I'm like, man, I kind of don't know what they're saying, but I do love this book a lot. She is a super cool writer. So this is your third book of essays. The first one, Meaty, then We Are Never Meeting in Real Life, now Wow, No Thank You. I'm curious how, like in your mind, are they categorized as different periods of your life, different themes, different topics? How do they stand apart for you? Well, meaty to me feels most like here's an overview of my past. <laughs> like here's a here's how we got here, kind mm-hmm. of. And then we're never meeting in real life is kind of a mix of here's how we got here and here's where we're going because I had met my partner at that point but she wasn't my wife yet and I hadn't moved from Chicago to Michigan yet and then wow no thank you is like where I am right now it's a Kalamazoo essay collection (laughs) Yes. yes it's me in Kalamazoo in our raggedy farmhouse with the cats like this is where I'm at. If you're looking for great Kalamazoo literature, look no further. <laughs> That's there, very kind. Were there new subjects that you wanted to take on in this collection? Like, do you pose a challenge for yourself as a writer? Now I'm going to write about this. I wasn't ready before. or I'm going to try this new thing. I mean, my life kind of helped in that, like, I hadn't lived with anyone who wasn't a roommate before. And I hadn't been married before. I hadn't been with anyone with like teens before. So it just kind of lent itself. I was like, I'm going to clock all of these feelings that I'm having while I'm having them rather than like looking back, you know, like, oh, remember when the kid, you know, remember how I felt when I first lived with a child? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's different to do that as it's happening and to kind of like, you know, process those feelings and then put them right out for other people. So I told myself before I started that there were some things I just didn't want to go into. Like, I didn't want to talk about my parents anymore or any of that stuff. I really wanted to focus on what I'm doing and what I might be doing in the future. So my life just kind of helped 
to put all the subject matter together for me. How do you approach your subjects? Like, do you kind of know this feels right? Or do you decide to write about something if it feels a little bit scary or a little uncertain? So I have two approaches. One is when something happens, like an event happens, and it's like funny or embarrassing or something embarrassing that I can make funny. I usually think like, okay, this is a story. This has a beginning, a middle and an end, and I can write about it. So there are like those things that are like events. And then the other things where I'm just like thinking about something and want to explore it and see what I can make of it. I usually like the thing I read about cell phones. I was like, let's think about what I love more than anything on this earth (laughs) and then write a love letter to it. So I think the it it's natural for me to have kind of a harrowing thing and to immediately want to like put it on paper because I feel like that's how I process it the best. And then, you know, if somebody else is going through kind of the same thing, I'm like, well, maybe this will serve someone else. I think what I'm really saying is like I have zero plans. And when things strike me that I feel like I can squeeze 5,000 words out of them, then I sit down and write it. Why do you think things that are harrowing and embarrassing are so funny? Well, for me, humor has been (laughs) the easiest and cheapest way to process those things. Like I have always been able to find like the nugget of absurdity in whatever's happening and just focusing on that and being like, you know, this was terrible, but what about that one funny thing? And so that has been like my way of kind of getting through bad things is just to like consistently look for the joke. I don't take myself too seriously. And some people who do like read my stuff and they're like, okay, I can laugh at that. I can find the the humor in the terrible thing that happened to me. And so I don't know, it's cheaper than therapy. And it's been, <laughs> it's, and, I, and I'm pretty good at, finding the funny bits. Eventually, I'm going to go get some Freudian analysis or something and then find out that this has all been like killing me slowly. But for now, it's worked. And then you'll write deeply felt poetry instead (laughs) of humorous essays. It's also, it's not just cheaper than therapy. It actually brings money in, which is, you know, kind of turning it on its head if you write about it. That's the truth. (laughs) You're saying like you don't have a plan, but I'm curious when you're putting together a collection of essays. Is it you have a bunch of material in front of you and you're sort of selecting it's going to be this one, this one, this one, and kind of calling and curating and figuring out the order? And how do you come to that? Do you work together closely with your editor? So with this book, I wrote We're Never Meeting and that I had an outline of things like I thought I might want to write about. And I had written, I don't know, four or five essays that like my agent took out. And so like they had an idea of what I could do and what the plan was. And with this one, I wrote a detailed outline of things that I thought I might want to write about. It was really hard because it was like the other book had just come out. I hadn't really done anything yet and I hadn't really like thought of anything. And so I was like, well, I could write about this or I could do this. So I came up with like 12 or 15 things that I thought 
I might want to write about. And we pitched it to my editor and she was like, great, let's do this. And then when it came time to write it, I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. And I don't want to write about that. And then look, this thing happened to me. So I'm going to write about that. I didn't know that I was going to work on Lindy West show Shrill. And so then when I got that job, I was like, well, I'm going to scrap one of these other things I was thinking about and write about that experience. So the outline, I don't even think I looked at <laughs> I don't even think I looked at it. The book I turned in, it was definitely not the book that I pitched, but I do myself the favor of turning every essay in as it is finished. So my editor gets an idea of what I'm working on. So I don't turn in a thing at the end that's like totally different than she was expecting. (laughs) And I did give her a heads up that like, hey, all of those things I told you I want to write about, I don't want to write about anymore. I hope this new stuff is okay. So you mentioned earlier writing about things that are harrowing. You're clearly no stranger to gallows humor. Is there anything funny so far about coronavirus, about this situation that we're all in? Do you have funny thoughts in your head or funny things that you write down and think like, oh, no, I can't say that? I mean, one of the things that's funny to me is truly like watching all of the outside people adjust to being indoors and like complaining about it online and it's never it's never the people who have like horrible situations who are like oh my god the walls are closing in it's always someone who has like high ceilings and faraway walls who's uh (laughs) whining about being inside their beautiful house all day that is funny to me I also think it is so so funny like the whole like zoom facetime no one being prepared to have like people see you and the inside of your house of it all Mm -hmm. like trying to find the place in your house where your zoom looks the best watching people try to figure out how to be in the space they created is pretty hilarious to me like which bookshelves should be behind them yes Yes. Yes, yes. I was saying earlier that if like watching the news and seeing like the reporters in their houses and you know like that they specifically pick those books to be behind them, like it's like my dream to curate my shelves, like what would be behind me if I was gonna be on MSNBC. (laughs) I would be pulling out like all the literature in the house. It would be like a little life and every Donna Tart book, like anything to make me look smarter than I actually am. And and we're all BBC men with like cats and animals and <laughs> dogs wandering in and out. <laughs> yeah, I do. I love that. Like the absurdity of like people giving like serious news reports and their like kid is running by in a walker. That's that's the best part of all this. Well, I would say one of the best parts of your books is the absurdity combined with the seriousness of some of the subjects. Samantha, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Pamela. This was incredible. Samantha Irby's book is called Wow, No Thank You.
So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. John Meacham joins us now from Nashville. His most recent book is The Hope of Glory, Reflections on the Last Words of Jesus from the Cross. He is the author of many books. Before that, The Soul of America, American Lion, Destiny and Power, a biography of George H.W. Bush, and our columnist in the book review of The Long View. John, thanks so much for being here. Delighted. Your newest column is back after a bit of a hiatus at the Book Review, and it looks at our current moment through the lens of earlier books, three earlier books, three different moments. And you looked this week at books about leadership under crisis, obviously. Very timely topic. I'm curious, though, to hear your thoughts about how you landed on this particular subject and on these three books. Well, crisis wonderfully comes from the Greek term in the medical vernacular for moment of decision. Hippocrates used it. So crisis means in the ancient world, it meant the moment in the course of a disease where a patient lived or died. It has rarely, if ever, been more applicable, right, to our our public life than, than right now. And if you do what I do, which is I spend a lot of time thinking about the American presidency, and you realize that there are certain moments where the character and the capacity of the person we send to the head of the republic, what Churchill called the great republic, matters beyond measure. People like me sometimes get criticized for we spend too much time thinking about the monarch and not about the people. We, we, overemphasized the significance of the presidency. Well, nobody's doing that this month, are they? No. (laughs) So when this began to break, I quickly tried to think of moments that roughly felt like this. So 1933 was a moment where a quarter of the country, at least, some scholars think it might have been 40% of the country, were out of work. So what Franklin Roosevelt did at the beginning of the the Depression mattered enormously. I always count Winston Churchill as an honorary American president because his mother was born in New York. What he did in May 1940 to stand up to those forces in London who wanted to negotiate with Hitler, which virtually every scholar agrees, would have smashed the morale of the British people and changed the course of the war. And then what Arthur Schlesinger used to call the most dangerous moment in human history, the Cuban Missile Crisis, when everything was at stake in this showdown between John Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev. It's interesting because each of those three moments has an obvious parallel to today. And the ones that I'm thinking of are the the totality, the immersion of the Blitz, the fact that it affected everyone, not just soldiers, but civilians in all aspects of daily life. Again, we can really very easily tie the, the lines between that. And then with the FDR example, obviously, as you described that in 
Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s book, the second part of his Age of Roosevelt trilogy, The Coming of the New Deal. We're talking about the Depression, which if we're not on the verge of a depression right now, we could very well be. But I want to go back to your first example. You sort of go back in time in, in order in your book to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Some of us weren't there. Set the scene, if you will, for us, October 16th, 1962, and draw the parallel with that. John Kennedy is in bed in the residence of the White House. The National Security Council bring him photographic evidence that the Soviet Union is deploying offensive nuclear weapons into Cuba, 90 miles away, in direct contradiction to a promise that Khrushchev had made him. It's virtually impossible for us to recover how important the loss of Cuba to the communist bloc was in the American imagination of the early, of 1959, 1960, 61, it was, we were living in the depths of the Cold War and the loss of any territory to the communist sphere was seen as cataclysmic. The fact that it was Cuba next door to the United States in many American imaginations signaled that they were coming for us. And then Moscow puts nuclear weapons there, which the casualty estimates, if there had been a hemispheric exchange of nuclear weapons in the fall of 1962, ranged between 70 and 100 million Americans. They were 20 to 30 minutes away by missile time from Washington and New York. So this was the nightmare scenario. Michael Dobbs, who wrote a marvelous book about it at the Washington Post, called One Minute to Midnight. I mean, that's how close we were. So Kennedy sees these pictures. It begins a 13-day standoff. And what Kennedy does, and this is what's so fascinating to me, is remember Jack Kennedy's father, who had been the ambassador to England, Court of St. James, in the late 1930s, 1940, had been seen as an appeaser, seen as someone who had not recognized and stood up to the threat of Hitler. And that was just 20 years before, right? So that's like the 2000 election for us. I mean, that's how close that was in time. And Kennedy had the guts to follow reason. He followed the facts. He did not react viscerally, ideologically. He was not defensive. He summoned the key players. He locked them in a room. He ran back channels. He tried everything he could. He borrowed, actually, from FDR the idea of bold, persistent experimentation. He would try one method, then he, if it didn't work, he'd try another, because he knew that the fate of everything hung in that moment. One of the things that distinguishes the three books you cite in your piece, and I'm just going to run through those titles quickly, the one about the Cuban Missile Crisis is Robert Kennedy's 13 Days, a memoir of the Cuban Missile Crisis. About FDR, you cite the second in Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s Age of Roosevelt trilogy, The Coming of the New Deal, which was about the first 100 days. And then the third book is John Lukacs's Five Days in London, May 1940, is that each of these books is a kind of witness to history, sort of tick-tock of a very contained period of time. I assume that was deliberate. I love those kinds of books, but why did you go to those books in particular? Because that's the way history is lived. 
people like me spend too much of our time saying the day, the week, the year that changed everything, right? That's the most commonly used subtitle <laughs> um, in, in, in publishing. But it's, as Henry Kissinger used to say, it also has the virtue of being true. So I love history. I try to write history that puts you in the moment. When people ask me about what's the key to writing stuff like this, I always say right off the top of my head, chronology is your friend, right? Because that's how it was lived. And it sounds banal and kind of obvious, but Barbara Tuckman brilliantly said years ago, probably 50 years ago now, 60 years ago now, that any reader will go along with you, even in the most familiar of stories, if you put yourself in the position of those who did not know how it was going to turn out. The Blitz in many ways feels like a very obvious parallel to today in that people's daily lives in London in particular were fundamentally altered. We were thinking about this recently at the book review because so many children's books, most famously the Narnia books, are set during that time because it so altered the way in which kids live their lives. And many of them had to be relocated and separated from their families. And that's something that everyone is experiencing right now. Talk to us a little bit about how Churchill was able to be a leader during a time when people were undergoing that kind of fundamental shift to their daily lives. It was a two-pronged approach. He told a story. It was a consistent brilliantly articulated story that though families were separated, though families were suffering, and though they would enormously going forward because blood, toil, tears, and sweat, we now hear that as kind of a football rallying cry. That was about people were going to be shedding blood, toiling, sweating, and crying. It was a very visceral articulation of what was ahead. The story he told was that though families would be broken, the family of Britain, the family of liberty would endure. And that was, again, not nostalgic. It was an immense achievement. And he was peculiarly suited to that. Winston Churchill, if he had died in 1938 or 39, would not have been remembered, we certainly wouldn't be talking about him. He would have been a sort of radical, sort of unstable politician, right? He had changed parties twice. He once said, anyone can rat, but it takes real character to re-rat. He had bounced around. He'd been in the house since 1901. He was 65 years old, which today is, you know, like being, he could run for president today because everybody's so old. He was old. He hadn't, he had been trying to be prime minister for years. This is his 40th year, biblically, in the House of Commons. But the reason he was so well-suited is he believed in Britain as a family, partly because his own family had been so disastrous, emotionally impoverished. His father died, we think, of syphilis. His mother never took an interest in him until he was sort of useful to her in a way in the world of late Victorian Edwardian England. He had grown up in an emotionally bereft world. And so he had taken, I believe, his familial feeling 
which found no resonance with his actual family and applied it to history and to Great Britain. Mm. And he told that story again and again. One of my favorite things to illustrate this is when he gave the great speech about their finest hour, the formulation is fascinating. He says, you know, let us conduct ourselves so that if this British empire and a commonwealth should survive a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. It's a really interesting formulation. Men will still say. He clearly believed that what was unfolding in that moment would be a story that would be told and retold and retold. As it is right here, we haven't even talked about your own books on Jefferson and George H.W. Bush and lessons we might draw from that. I'm hoping we can do that on a future podcast. John, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. John Meacham is the author most recently of The Hope of Glory, Reflections on the Last Words of Jesus from the Cross, and many other books. He is the Longview columnist in the Book Review. Joining us now, our publishing reporter, Alexandra Alter, to give us some news from the book world. Alexandra, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So the news is not terrible, which in this context is fantastic. <laughs> the latest figures from NPD BookScan going through March, which was when the pandemic really started to take off and there was the wave of bookstore closures in shelter-in-place orders, the March figures were really not bad, as NPD BookScan put it in a tweet. The book market continues to show remarkable resilience in the week ending March 28th. So sales were down just 0.9% compared to the previous year, the same period. And that's pretty remarkable. So juvenile nonfiction was the big driver of sales. In March, it grew 53%. So again, that's because kids are home and parents need to keep them educated slash entertained. But for now, I think people are still finding various ways to get new books and sales haven't flagged all that much. So that's really good news. But how is that possible? I think a combination of things. So you can still order books through Amazon, through Walmart, you can get them from independent stores that either have curbside pickup or online sales and delivery. Bookshop.org has really taken off. This was, I think, a very well-timed initiative. You know, it was really just starting to get going in the weeks leading up to the pandemic. And this is a, a basically a group that has put itself forward as the independence alternative to Amazon. So you can go on bookshop.org and buy books and have them delivered and the sales will be done through an independent store and you can specify the store if they're on there. Some of the independents that haven't had as robust of an online presence have certainly suffered. And, you know, a lot of those stores are really community-based stores. And so when people can't come in, that has been devastating. There is still a real concern that when all of this is over, some of those stores might not make it back. On the other hand, the online sales seem to be really providing a lifeline for a lot of independents right now and for publishers. And according to, you know, anecdotal information I've gotten from publishers and editors, ebook sales have been really strong. And that's, of course, not surprising at all. That's That remains a way that you can seamlessly get books delivered to whatever device you read on. 
One question I have, and this is something that I've heard anecdotally, I wonder if it's true, is that Amazon isn't stocking new physical books the way they were before, and that that is depressing sales, but a little bit ways out. In other words, books that were supposed to come out, Amazon is not buying the physical books, and so publishers are delaying the pub date. Is that happening? I've heard about that happening anecdotally. And it's interesting, if you look on Amazon, there was a period where a lot of books had really delayed shipping because they were prioritizing essential household goods. And for some titles, I think that's continued. But for others, the shipping dates are the way they used to be in a day or two. And I have heard that as a result of Amazon not stocking as many books or buying new books, publishers are pushing back pub dates. So it's having kind of a domino effect, but the policy hasn't been articulated clearly and it's all shifting kind of daily and almost hourly because Amazon is just trying to keep up with essential goods and the things that they feel like they need to get delivered. So it feels like right now is kind of okay, but there's maybe a little bit more uncertainty coming down the line. That's absolutely true. And I know we've talked about this in previous weeks, but I think a real concern is warehouses and safety there. And so, you know, there have been issues with Amazon workers contracting coronavirus, and there have been Barnes & Noble warehouses where workers have contracted it. So I think the concern for publishers who operate their own warehouses is how do we keep these facilities safe for workers? How do we keep goods flowing in and out? Because that really could shut down things quite quickly if some of those bigger warehouses had to close. All right. Leave us with a bright spot, Alexandra. I know you have some good news that you reported (laughs) on. Yes, I do have some good news. And that is publishers and nonprofits are really stepping up their efforts to help kids who are out of school. And I think one of the big concerns people have in the wake of school closures is there's always been a big educational divide between wealthier and and less well-off households. And the digital divide is obviously making that even more problematic. So whereas, you know, a lot of kids are able to do online schooling in households without internet or computers, how do you get educational materials to those kids? And so we're seeing publishers and even subscription services companies like Scribd making books available for free. And often you can read them on your cell phone. So you can read them on a mobile device. One of the groups that's been really active in this area is World Reader. They work mostly in the developing world in Latin America and Asia and the Middle East and Africa. They've also accelerated this new app called Booksmart, which is curated by Age Group, and you can get free ebooks there. And they've opened it up in the U.S. and Europe. So kids who are out of school can find books that way. So are all of these free picture books? Are these all digital books or any of them physical books? The free ones that I was looking at in this recent story are digital books. And I think that is kind of critical right now because of the shelter in place orders and stay at home and all those things. It's just an easy way to make content available. There are groups like First Book that have been distributing physical books as well. And First Book is a literacy nonprofit and they have distributed more than a million print books. And they've also made ebooks available to teachers to distribute because their position is that teachers know which students need books the most. And those teachers have downloaded 724,000 codes, which they can then distribute to several of their students, which is more than all of 2019 in terms of the downloads. One group that I 
have only recently become aware of because of my own kids becoming obsessed with it is is the digital reading platform Epic, which has 40,000 kids ebooks, some really great ones. And they've made their library available for free to school teachers through June 30th. And then parents can also use it for free for a month. So there are all these ways to keep your kids reading. And even if they're on screens, they can still be reading books that way. So that's been really great to see. All right. Excellent news. Alexander, thank you so much. My pleasure. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Greg Coles and John Williams. Hi there. Hey, Hi, Pamela. Let's start with you, John. What are you reading? I picked up a book this week that I've always been a little bit intimidated by because I know that this author has a reputation for being somewhat difficult. It's the Hungarian novelist Laszlo Krasnohorkai, who is often listed among the likely Nobel Prize winners. And our colleague and friend Jen Salai has written about him before for the London Review of Books and maybe other places. I know that she's a fan. So I picked up his novel Satan Tango, which is a a strange book, first published in Hungary in 1985. And it is about a group of people who are on a sort of crumbling estate in a small provincial area of Hungary. And they are poor. It seems that sort of all industry and, and life has essentially gone away. And they've heard tell that this sort of mysterious guy who is a leader of theirs, who they thought had died 18 months ago, is actually returning to town with another guy next to him. And so we sort of meet these people one by one, and then we see the this mysterious person re-arrive as if he's been resurrected. There are some pretty obvious religious parallels here, but it's not at all a, an explicitly religious story. And it's just kind of, as someone said, I think online about his work, it's it's dystopian and melancholic. It is deeply, deeply strange if you're not used to it. You get used to it after a while. The writing is not particularly difficult. Some very long sentences, but it's readable. But it's just that the tone and the sort of way it moves through the characters, it's not a traditional story at all. And there are moments of true you know, great underlined passages, but a lot of it is a bit of a grind. I have about 50 pages left. So I, and it is a bit of a mystery (laughs) to know what, what this guy really is and what he's, he comes back and sort of promises that he can lead them to a better life after all of this has, has crumbled around them. So I'm sure that I'm not making this sound very, (laughs) very readable, but I promise you it sort of is. (laughs) Is this something that you picked up pre or post Corona? You know, I bought it, I think not terribly long before Corona. So I had it laying around. I haven't bought any books since I think a couple of days after we started working from home when a local bookstore was still open. I sort of went in and and bought four or five books as a last attempt to help them out before they were going <laughs> to shut down for a while. Greg, what are you reading? You talk about how you got the book because this is an issue for all of us in these days of lockdown. And to the extent that this little chat we always have feels like a book group, it feels even more like that right now because the book that I'm reading is one that I borrowed from Pamela um, also very shortly before we went into lockdown. And it's a book that I am rereading, although I didn't make it very deep into it the first time. John, I know you had the same experience and reread it. So rather than keeping you in suspense any longer. I think I know what it is based on that description. (laughs) I am reading Sally Rooney's debut novel, (laughs) Conversations with Friends. It came out, I think, in 2017. She followed it up just this year or late last year with Normal People that's uh, now being made into a TV show. But I had 
picked up Conversations with Friends when it first came out and made it about 30 pages in before I said, okay, I, I see what she's doing here. Wait, I get wait, it. wait, stop. <laughs> I think that's where I stopped. And one thing I wanted to ask you was, could you tell in my copy, like where I stopped from the crack in the spine? Certainly not very far in. Okay. <laughs> you're you're being very gentle and delicate there with the facts. Thank you. But you know, there's there's no dog-eared pages or underlined lines or anything like that. So it feels like I'm reading a, a fresh copy of it. And I've made it further than 30 pages in this time, but not that much further. I, I've maybe doubled that. I'm about 60 pages in now. So I'm I'm getting a real sense of the shape of the story in a way where when you only read the first 30 pages of something. You get the voice, you get the, a, a sense of the writing and the dialogue, but you don't have a real feel for the architecture of the book yet. Now that's taking shape. It is a, a fairly conventional story of a younger woman and an older man. He's an actor at, and married. She is a university student and a poet. There's a real coolness in the narration that gives it the same tone you might find in somebody like Rachel Cusk. But true to the title, Conversations with Friends, it really comes alive in the conversations, which are all very intentionally performative. There's a, this sense of sense of conversation as kind of a substitute for sex early on in a relationship. It's mannered, very styled in the conversations, but in a way that feels very true to a young woman getting to know herself and her powers of observation and charm. So there's something very true to the psychology and especially the self-insight in this book that is pushing me past where I resisted it the first time. And you feel committed now? I do feel committed. I'm, I'm certainly going to finish it this time. John, I know that you resisted it deep into it and said that it really clicked into place for you in like the last third. And partly on the strength of that, I'm committed to pushing my way through. No, the no, end. no, 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 no. I, I, a little bit of revisionist history. I, <laughs> I, I, the funny thing is I had the almost the exact same experience as you and Pamela, which is that I think I read 20 pages or so at my desk at work and yeah, just wasn't gripped. I didn't dislike it, but I just didn't feel any compelled reason to go on. And so I put it down. And then a few months later, I had it at home on a rainy weekend and I picked it up on a Saturday. It was very gray out and I just had nothing else to do. And I literally read it almost cover to cover and just got immersed in it. And I have to say, I, I felt after I finished it, that it was one of my favorite novels of recent years. And I, I know that there's a real schism between some people love both books, but there's usually you either prefer conversations or normal people. And I just found the psychology of conversations of the, of the character who we see most deeply, who sort of tells the story as very, very rigorous and nuanced. And I, I felt like I knew her and normal people I feel is a little more fable like, and I thought it was fine, but I didn't, I didn't love it as much. It, it's funny knowing that her second book is called normal people, there are places in this where she uses that phrase, normal people, and where she sets the the narrator, Francis, against normal people. I felt like a genius among normal people, or I thought this was how normal people do things. And I thought, oh, this is something that, that Sally Rooney plays with as a concept. That's very uh, funny. Yeah. <laughs> Having read it after that came out. <laughs> Pamela, yeah. what about you? What are you reading? Well, I'm going to go back in time a little bit. I am done with my December vacation, but in February, during a very brief four-day ski vacation to Vermont, I read a book that I didn't realize at the time begins in Vermont, and that is mm. Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety. 
it's a really good book to read right now if you're looking for something to read and happen to be able to get your hands on a copy. I had only read one book by Stegner, which was probably the book that everyone reads, Angle of Repose. And I read it back in my 20s and always meant to come back to him. And I associated him with, of course, the great novel of the West. But this book is a bit different. It's semi-autobiographical. It's about two couples, Larry and Sally, and then Sid and Charity Lang. And you start off with Larry and Sally. They are older, maybe in their 60s. And Sally has some health problems. And they're at a lakeside cabin in Vermont. And part of me was like, oh, my God, I'm reading On Golden Pond. You know, like I just, <laughs> I, but it's not at all that. It quickly goes back in time and then it kind of goes back and forth in time. But it is mostly set beginning in the Depression. Larry is a, is a new academic taking a very tenuous position at a university in the Midwest. And a lot of it is about academia at that time. And it's really startling. The parallels here are like, nothing has changed. Oh, God, <laughs> nothing has changed. They're all trying to get tenure. But it's the depression, and it just couldn't be a worse time. And it's interesting how hand-to-mouth Larry and Sally's life is. They have no money to speak of. And they meet a couple who does have a lot of money, Sid and Charity Lang, who are these incredibly wealthy, well-connected, worldly counterparts and they become best friends in a lot of ways it's a book about friendship and the friendship between these two couples and I had a copy of it which I left on my desk in the office so I worried about being able to talk about it because there was a few passages that I loved and one passage happily I took a photo of on my phone and I also think it's a very apt passage to read right now when everyone is a little bit in a panic over the state of culture and the publishing industry. So this takes place. Larry and Sally and Sid and Charity are at a dinner table talking about the state of the publishing industry and the Uncle Richard who's referred to. It doesn't really matter who he is other than to know that he works in publishing. Here you go. Being an academic table, we began deploring the level of popular taste. Only junk seemed to sell. Wasn't there any market for good, serious, intelligent, well-written books? There must be. Couldn't you count on a good book's finding an audience? Small, maybe, but enough to carry it? Sometimes, Uncle Richard said. How many copies would a book like that be likely to sell? Uncle Richard made a balancing, delicate, cosy-cosy gesture with his hand. <laughs> How many would it have to sell before its publisher broke even? Depends on size and price. An ordinary novel, around 3500 And you say it would have trouble doing even that well? One out of a two dozen will do that well. <laughs> so <laughs> what's scary is that the numbers are not that different right now. Um, mm. And this scene takes place in 1930s America. <laughs> you know, it was a smaller country, obviously uh, a slightly more literate country or more inclined to entertain with books than with Hulu. But... <laughs> The numbers for the break-even with publishing are not that changed. <laughs> Has either of you read Stegner? I have read Stegner. I read Crossing to Safety even, but it was so long ago that when you first said that you were reading it, I had to cast my mind back and think, is that the academic novel? And I I'm glad to hear that it is, so I'm not entirely losing my mind. 
Yes, I was too young. Like uh, maybe Greg wasn't because he was he's more mature than I am. But, <laughs> but I <laughs> far from it. I probably read it. I would say if I had to guess, I was I was in my early twenties at the oldest, and I remember admiring it. I don't remember much about it in terms of the specifics, but I do think I would probably get more out of it now as someone who's who's experienced more. I mean, it's a very adult book, you know, and it's sort of emotional themes. And I was I was a bit of a late bloomer. Okay, I have to pick your Stegner brains one more time, because another book that's on my potential to be read pile is Big Rock Candy Mountain. Have either of you read that? never knew. Crossing to Safety is the only one I've read. And I I think I will get to Angle of Repose, hopefully, if I live a long life. And those are the only two that I've read. All right, there you go. We know nothing of Stegner here, (laughs) (laughs) but a lot about Sally Rooney. Let's quickly go over the books we read. John. I'm almost done with Satan Tango by Laszlo Krasnohorke. I am just starting Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. And I read Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back. Not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Mm-hmm.